and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I am one of your hosts, Matt Winesett, joined by my trusty co-host, as always, Max Frost. And we have one more host joining us today. You might remember him from an episode he guest-hosted on back in July or June. Max, why don't you introduce yourself? Matt Winesett and Max Frost, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show today and going forward. I can't wait to talk about policy and politics with you all What's your last and name? Just so it's can... Tui. Okay, it's Tui. We have two matches now. We now have three people here that have a total of four different letters in their names. Yes, very diverse group of people. Where? Uh, so, how long have you been here, Max? And where were you before this? I was. I've been at AEI for eighteen months, fighting the good fight for free enterprise, which is what we do here. And prior to. Joining AEI, I was at Notre Dame, so as a student studying finance and philosophy. And I didn't know you had the philosophy back. I had so. the philo- well. Makes I figured, sense. you know, now it all comes out. Y- it'll come out on the show. Okay. You'll see. I've been here eighteen months and thrilled to be part of Banter, and especially at an exciting time for AEI. Yeah, and you actually. So people might remember that you were a host on the Alex Berenson. Podcast Alex Berenson, as well, right? Right. Right. He that was came, the medical marijuana. The part. medical marijuana episode and he highlighted a lot of the risks, the uncertainties, the medical questions surrounding cannabis. We yeah, we got some good feedback on that one too and some some pushback, but it was a good conversation. That's the key to any good episode, good feedback, good pushback. Anyway, this episode we are joined by A Wayne Johnson. A is his first initial. Wayne is not Dwayne, he's not The Rock, although there was a little confusion when he walked in. <laughs> He was a former senior student loan official in the Trump administration, and he came on our radar because of this Wall Street Journal column, not column, article about him back in October, where it led off by saying, a senior student loan official in the Trump administration said he would resign Thursday and endorse canceling most of the nation's outstanding student debt, calling the student loan system fundamentally broken. This is a pretty big shot coming from a Republican official, so we invited him on today. Frost, you got uh, what's you got some more background info on him? Dr. Johnson got his PhD in education from Mercer University, has an MBA from Emory. Uh, he was a businessman before he got involved in education policy. We had an interesting conversation. He really does not, I mean, he does not sound like, your, he certainly does not sound like your traditional free market conservative, at least on this education issue. And, he's, and he makes a strong argument about how fundamentally broken the system is. And we enjoyed it. I don't think any of us fully agree with everything he's saying at all, but it was a good conversation. Absolutely. And as you said, Max, a broken system. And I think nobody is questioning the magnitude of the problem. Uh, you know, some some quick hitters for the audience at home here. First of all, student debt is now the second largest pool of debt in the country after home loans. It sits at $1.6 trillion. Another, the federal government, and this is key to his entire argument, the federal government is the largest by far student lender. So most of this is happening out of Washington, D.C. And then here's another one. Over the past 20 years, college costs have grown at over three times the rate of inflation. So right there you see that colleges are very much complicit or involved in these spiking levels of student debt. And then finally... Over 70% of college graduates have student debt, with the average bar owing more than 37000 
at graduation. So there is no question that this is a major problem. That's the thing. There's no question it's a problem. The, ba- the better debate is what do you do about it? And we should say the reason Dr. Johnson is joining us today is because he was here for an event with AEI's Jason Delisle, who works on higher education, finance, and loans at AEI. And they also had a pretty rigorous debate because some of the work that Jason Delisle is working on is contrasts pretty heavily with Dr. Johnson's plan. So we encourage you to check out AEI's work on this as well, because there are several plans out there, several disagreements. But we're about to hear Dr. Johnson's argument, and we think it's interesting. We think it's worthwhile having. He also gave some good advice on where to go for a master's program. Yeah, well, in some ways, it felt like Max's, Max Frost's personal tutoring session <laughs> on, was... on career planning. But we think you'll enjoy it. We really did. And without further ado, here is Dr. Wayne Johnson. Dr. Johnson, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and please call me Wayne. All right. Well, thank you, Wayne. Maybe Wayne the Rock Johnson. Do you ever get that? <laughs> Actually, there was, a, there was a recent interview I was doing on TV, and they started off by saying, here's Dr. Wayne Johnson, not to be confused with uh, you know Dwayne the Rock. So. I, I got confused when he walked in here. So. And I got to tell you, I got more light-ups on that than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have any questions prepared because we thought we were talking to a uh, professional wrestler today. <laughs> um, so we said a bit about your story in the introduction, but we want to hear it in your own words. What is your plan? You made quite a stir when you resigned from the Department of Education with your plan to cancel student debt. Well, actually, my plan is beyond uh, canceling student debt. The cancellation of up to $50,000 of debt for people that are actually on the books is secondary to the plan of what we should do going forward. My real plan is to uh, for the federal government to get out of the uh, student loan business. And then to do that, you know, I'm looking towards a grant program, which would basically be a go-forward line of credit. And that's very uh, much in line with what uh, uh, Jeb Bush had put forth in his 2016 uh, run for office. And that's really where I got the inspiration for that. Mm-hmm. Debt cancellation is a is a secondary aspect, which basically says if I'm going to give $50,000 to people going forward, then... The folks that are on the books now would say, well, wait a minute, you know, 50000 would make sense for me as well, and I agree, concur with that. And by the way, $50,000 of debt relief will totally remove uh, the debt for 37 million Americans uh, mm-hmm. out of the $44 million that are on the books. Now, if somebody's got more, which people do have more than uh, $50,000, there's approximately seven, six and a half, seven million people there. Those people would still have to pay beyond the 50000 but I want to put in place a uh, modified income-based repayment plan so that they would pay based upon their income, and then at the end of 15 years, that would be extinguished. And then the piece I think a lot of folks have said, oh, wow, that makes sense, is uh, a lot of folks have either refinanced out of their federal loans or paid off their federal loans or never used their federal loans. They did it some other way. And that's where the idea of a tax credit uh, that would basically uh, make whole those folks. One thing, I, there's been some discussion of different plans in the past, not by me, but others that said, well, forgive all the federal student loans, forgive all the private student loans. That's a that's a reach. So uh, the idea of giving the tax credit would take care of those people that have uh, financed through another mechanism. Now, you know, I think part of your question is what led me to this, and the answer was I spent 35 years in consumer finance, to, a lot of that time in the credit card industry, you know, worked in different uh, capacities helping people to successfully and properly manage the ability to borrow. 
And then I went and got a doctorate in the subject so I could be informed as I entered uh, service to the, to the government. But sitting there looking at all of the things that were going on, it became crystal clear to me that uh, we needed to basically stop the insanity mm-hmm. of, of continuing to get people into this, uh, uh, this burden of almost insurmountable debt, but more importantly, never, uh, never, never completion of the debt cycle. I mean, we've got people today that are in their 60s and 70s still paying against student loans for themselves and or uh, for the children or grandchildren. Now, what about the parents who saved up $200,000 over a 20-year career to pay for their kid to go to college for uh, for four years? I mean, are they going to get compensated in this plan somehow? Is it going to be a you know retroactive credit? Yeah, I'm looking at a look-back period. I've been looking, evaluating a 10-year look-back. I've been lo- evaluating a 15-year look-back. Uh, so the answer is yes. It's just a matter of how far back we go. I've, I've still got to run, talk to some the economists and co-experts to tell me just you know what we're dealing with there. But And that's the other thing I'd, I'd like to make sure everybody understands. While I have some very firm ideas about what we should be doing, I'm still in the process of shaping this. What I really wanted to do as I left was to lay out what I thought was a bold, a comprehensive, and a decisive plan and put it forward. And I think it will stand um, the test of, of review. But at the same time, this is something that's so incredibly important and needs to be shaped by people. For example, in this organization, y'all got some of the world's best economists. I'd love to see them weighed in on this. Did you, prior to joining the Department of Education in 2017, did you have any plans or ideas for student loan forgiveness? Is this something you wanted to do for a while? Or did you see something on the front lines of American education policy, looking at the data that made you think, wow, we got to do this? So while I was getting my doctorate, and I got my doctorate award in 2016, I actually uh, put in place a business that would refinance people out of high interest uh, student loans, private student loans, and put them into low interest rates and extend their amortization periods, mainly to get their monthly payments down. So I, I, I knew that there was a need to change the dynamics of the repayments, but always on a basis where it would amortize and you know eventually the trajectory would be a payoff. When I went to, to the Department of Ed, I was very focused on what can we do to make this machine work better? What can we do to get the level of service equal to an American Express, a Cap One, a USA? Uh, how do we digitize the experience? I mean, I, I launched a concept called Mobile First, Mobile Complete, Mobile Continuous, so that you could uh, self-service. And the whole effort was to take all these uh, plans and programs that the federal government has and make them more readily and easily accessible and easily understood, because. There is absolutely zero reason why anybody should be in a delinquency or let alone a default stage, given the whole myriad of programs that the federal government answers. There's no no reason whatsoever. A lot of that was they just don't know. But so that was my focus. And quite frankly, uh, I envisioned a concept called Next Gen uh, FSA, and we started working towards uh, changes. But what happened is I started looking at the construct of the programs, and I started looking at the construct of the kind of the payment characteristics. A couple of things really, you know, started screaming at me. First of all, uh, we would have a high instance of what we call first payment defaults, and this is where people got to their point where they needed to make their first payment. They either left school or they graduated from school, and now the time has come to make the payment. We had a very high incidence of first payment defaults, and it started asking the question, why? I mean. And, and when you get behind it, you find out that they didn't even know they owed the money. And, 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 and they certainly didn't know how much they owed or what for what reason. And a large portion of that is because 
FSA provides the money, but the schools actually administer the deployment. And so consequently, the federal government doesn't have any connectivity. And people are racking up to schools and signing 10-year master promissory notes in blank with no interest or, or, or dollar amounts assigned to it. And so consequently, they literally will complete school and even undergrad and in many cases even all the way through grad school and never have any idea of the totality of, of what they owe because their addresses get lost and you know nobody presented that to them. So the high incidence of first payment defaults, and by the way, if you miss your first, second, or third, you're you're basically toast on your credit bureau. Just to picture this, are these basically 17 and 18-year-old kids showing up and signing these notes to take out all these loans and, and they don't realize what they're doing? It's 17, 18, um, 19, 20, and yeah. it's also 40, 45, and 50. So it affects everyone. Everyone. Right. They basically come into the school. The school says, here's your award letter. Um, here's you know kind of what the pricing is. Here's the, you know let's call it the, uh, the, the discounting by way of, quote, scholarships, whatever. Yeah. And here's the uh, amount of aid you're going to get from the federal government. And oh, by the way, it's it's a loan. So if you really think about it, it's a it's a it's an interesting um, inflection point in the in a and in, in the the dynamics between the school wants the student, but the, and the student wants to be there. So basically, the student enters into what I call a satisfying uh, decision. The other thing that really got my attention, like, wow, how is this happening? is the incidence of uh, people that are actually making payments each month, but even after they've made the payments each month, they owe more next month than they owed when they made the payment. Wow. And put that in perspective, approximately 75, only only 25%, no more than 25% of the file right now is reducing principal and interest each month. Wow. So, and so you've got a huge accumulation in, in, um, in capitalized, capitalized and compounded interest. It's not uncommon for somebody to have borrowed thirty, forty thousand dollars and after forbearances and forgivenesses and what have you, uh, to now owe hundred and twenty thousand. So you get you go from this and then and then when you got people that get married and all of a sudden they're consolidating their debt, uh, there's a there's a card I, I really uh, I'm gonna frame one day. It says, I love you enough to take on your student loan debt. Well yeah, I was just gonna say when I when I was looking at master's programs and all my professors from school pointed me to a number of I was interested in public policy, master's programs in public policy. I remember one of them where the total cost was estimated at just under $200,000 for a two-year program in public policy. This is not computer science. It's not finance. It's policy. And on their financial aid page, it says, can, I, can, I, can you afford it? Huh. The short answer is yes, with this combination of blah, blah, blah. But they don't tell you what you're getting into. And I mean, even if you're looking at it as a 22-year-old student and you've been through undergrad, you still don't, you still don't understand you're committing yourself indefinitely. But I'm wondering, what role do the universities have to play here? I mean, it's one thing for the government to forgive debt, but tuition is going to remain $70,000 a year for a top degree, right? Or- I don't. The answer is I don't know that. I don't know what the universities will do. So under my plan, there will be X amount of money, and be very specific, for an undergraduate, there will be $50,000. You can take on as much fifty, you know, as 50000 will buy you. Um, and that you can use it for tuition, you books. You can also use it for some of the you know ancillary costs. Uh, now, I have also added to that the concept of uh, complementing that with a, um, a federal income share agreement, which could be another fifty thousand dollars. But the first fifty is actually granted, and the second fifty would be on a you know repayment uh, mm-hmm. program. But 
A couple of things. Let's talk about your case. So um, if I was in the financial aid office there, now, I won't say I, I would I would purport that I would not do this, but let's say somebody would do this. Let's say absolutely you can afford it. Because it's a grad pro- program, you're, you're eligible for what's called a grad plus loan, which means there's an unlimited amount of money that the federal government will provide to you to engage in that program. I say again, unlimited. So they want to charge you 100, 200, 300, whatever you're willing to sign up for, the federal government will make available. And then the rest of the story would be, but, um, you know, don't sweat it too much because uh, when it comes time to repay, you're going to be signed up for what's called an income-based repayment plan, which will be a percentage of your income. So whether it's 200000 or whether it's $20,000, you'll, you'll make the same identical payment. And so it's, it's no matter how much money you took down, your payment will never change. So there's a, a very perverse incentive for the school to charge you money. And quite frankly, uh, it's like, you know, I'm ambivalent to that. And then they'll take it another step and say that, by the way, that income-based repayment plan uh, will, you'll pay that minimum amount for, I, I think currently it's 25 years, and then it just evaporates. And, oh, by the way, your I- income-based repayment plan could be set up with negative amortization. So every month, your 200000 is going to grow, but come 25 years, your whatever it's grown to is going to come off the books. Now, if you're also involved uh, with a non-for-profit or, a pub, you know, um, the federal, I mean, any governments. By the way, this is another thing. 25% of the jobs in America are actually filled by people in the not-for-profit sector, the government sector, what have you. But if, if, if you're in, in that, then we got a deal for you. It's called a public service loan forgiveness program. So you work for that nonprofit for 10 years and your 200000 goes away. So we put you into an IBR uh, so you're only making the, the, the payments that that drives to. And instead of having to wait 25 years for forgiveness because you were in a public service type uh, and engaged uh, activity, it'll go away in 10 years. But then you start having to deal with the backside of all this. And the backside of all this is the public service loan forgiveness programs were um, ill structured from a legal standpoint 10 years ago in terms of making the gates. For example, if you're going to qualify for a public service loan forgiveness, you have got to make uh, 120 exactly on-time payments. And if you pay a nickel less than that payment, it doesn't count. If you make a year's worth of payments in advance, that counts as one payment, not 12 payments. And then you've got to have documented that you, you know, the organizations that you were working for, because we don't have the ability to cross. I mean, the FSA doesn't have the ability to cross-reference to the IRS or the Social Security databases. So, you know, that's that's how you get many, many, many people. I'm talking about a few hundred thousand people applying, and a, a very small number being approved. It's not because FSA doesn't want to do that. That it's because the mechanics of the law are very precise in terms of what you got to go through. So, Wayne, I don't think there's anybody looking at the student debt situation in America and saying this isn't a problem. <laughs> you know, it sits at $1.6 trillion nationally. It's quadrupled in 15 years. But I do think there's another group of Americans that bears mentioning, and that would be <coughs> the two-thirds of our adult population who did not attend college. Right. And so... This is a group that largely consists of lower and middle income workers. 
who many of whom are burdened by all kinds of debt, you know, mortgages, credit card debt, etc. How can you explain this to them that we're going to institute some sort of tax or rechannel money in our budget to take care of this debt problem? But you know what? The people who got the political science degrees, the communication degrees, art history degrees, we're going to forgive their debt. But you, you didn't go to college. You didn't take this route. So your debt, yeah, you can keep it. How do you justify that? Well, first of all, the debt that people are carrying was funded by uh, borrowings from the federal, I mean, borrowings from the treasury. That money has already been taken down, already been put out. So forgiving any uh, level of debt will not require a single penny of new tax money coming from any source because that money's already been, uh, you know, borrowed for and funded. So let's let's just rest assured, debt forgiveness does not uh, mean any level of additional funding from any source. It, now, what it does mean is we still carry 1.6 out of our 22 trillion on the books. And by the way, it's not 1.6 because of that 1.6, a goodly chunk of it, several hundred billion dollars, is actually accrued interest. So, hmm. so of, of the 22 trillion. You know, one, let's say $1.2 trillion more or less is, is, has already been barred. So you don't have to go cough up any money in order to, to do this action. But the real question I would uh, tie to is in terms of what you're saying is what's the go forward? I'm the person that, you know, graduated from high school five years ago and, you know, I'm happy in my job. And, you know, why should I be, you know, going forward paying for somebody to, to, to go to school, whether it's skills training or what have you? Well, under my plan, that person would be able to tap into their uh, their allocated fifty thousand dollars to go skill themselves up if they want to. They could go become you know an air conditioning technician. They could become a you know truck driver, a diesel mechanic, uh, nurse. You you name it. So one of the big things I'm focused on is that this should be funding that's not only on a go forward. You just graduate from high school, but also it'd be uh, available for people to uh, to skill up in its lifetime. So let's just say you rock along and you become 50 years old and uh, you want to do something else. And there's a lot of post-high school education that's really uh, skill up. So that, that's what ties to that. Now, somebody asked me one time, or I, saw, I read a, a, a report, I think it's from a lady from the Manhattan Institute. She said, for example, she was talking about millennials. She said, well, millennials really don't have a debt burden. Two-thirds of millennials you know, never took on debt for whatever set of reasons. And my thinking is, yeah, but and this is kind of a lot like the same th- thing that a lot of people never had cancer, and uh, they're interested in cancer treatment as well. Mm-hmm. So my response to that is the debt that's on the books can go away, not a single new penny of tax. The go forward is there, but the most important thing about my plan is where I see the money coming from. Right now, middle-class America, uh, personal income tax pays for everything that's going on in higher education today. Uh, going forward, I'd like for uh, it to be paid for by uh, corporations, by, by for-profit corporations and not-for-profit corporations, where we would ask them to make an investment in America, and that investment would be a tax equal to 1% of their top-line revenue. And uh, so all of a sudden, we pivot who's paying for higher education from individuals, those who go and those who don't go. We're pivoting it to uh, corporations, and the reason for that are corporations, for-profit, not-for-profit, and then, of course, government entities. They're the ones that actually draw upon a skilled and educated workforce. So why it doesn't make sense if they're going to draw upon the skilled and educated workforce population 
that they're they should be the ones funding uh, to that. And just so you got some numbers around that, uh, the total top line revenue for all corp- all for profit and not for profit corporations in America is approximately twenty four trillion dollars. And one percent on twenty four trillion would give us about two hundred and forty billion dollars. Uh, my go forward plan is about one hundred and forty billion dollars a year. That would throw off an excess of $100 billion a year coming from corporations that I would like to use to actually reduce the uh, uh, the uh, federal debt burden. So under my plan, all the uh, cost comes off the back of the average middle class or uh, average American, period, or the, uh, the Americans, and it goes on to the uh, – Funded through the corporations. So this would be we just the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act cut the rate from thirty five down to twenty one percent. So you want to move it up to twenty two? Nope, or? nope, absolutely not. How to work? So uh, I want to keep everything within the twenty one percent limit. Okay. So I'm not about to say we're going to go from twenty one to twenty two because that would just not fly well. But twenty one percent actually becomes. I mean, I, I ran some pretty good sized businesses, and so I know what it means to draw from an educated workforce, and also know what you know corporate taxes are about. But if you actually look at the actual um, real rate of taxes that corporations pay, it's far, far less than 21%. So my plan would say we would tax you at 1% top line for this, but no matter how the math works out, you would never exceed the 21%. So we would stay uh, duty-bound to the 21% cap. But, for example, uh, I don't think it's a secret. Amazon got a tax refund last year. Netflix doesn't pay any taxes. I mean, zero. Even though the cap rate is 21, they're paying zero. So, and and in General Motors, same situation. So, when you actually look at it and you say, okay, we're going to honor the 21% maximum tax rate because we did come from 35 to 21, and whatever happens with this top line, it will never exceed that. I think we're going to be in good shape. I I can see the appeal of that politically to the mass audience, but isn't in some ways money fungible? So, the money can come from no matter where it comes from. It's all like it's like pulling water out of a swimming pool. Like you might say you're getting it from the shallow end, but it's really just coming out of the pool. Well, actually, you could either do it on a fungible, fungible funds basis, or you could actually do it on a dedicated trust fund basis. Okay. Is that so? I have two quick questions in terms of how it would work. One would be so his example, Max's example of going to grad school where the bill's just under $200,000, suppose he takes out that loan and he graduates and he's got an outstanding principal of 190000 to repay. You're forgiving fifty k. Well, let's talk about his case. Just for, so everyone knows, I did not go to this school. But. <laughs> well, in your case, here's under the, my plan. Here's what would happen. You go to that school and you're in... You're certainly intrigued, and you're looking at it, and you're, and, you know, you're certainly impressed. This is where you want to be. So you, it's, since it's a grad school, I'm going to assume that you used, for sake of discussion, thirty thousand for your undergrad. So you got twenty thousand. So you would have twenty thousand against your f- original fifty grant that you could use. You would also be able to tap into another fifty thousand dollars by way of an income, you know, federal income share agreement. So you know, you got seventy against your two hundred. Uh, you're still light. So what's going to happen? Well, a couple of things kick in. One is the school could actually say, you know what, we're so confident in you and so confident in our program uh, that we will put in place a supplemental income share agreement or we will make you a loan. Or you can actually, because you're now undergraduate qualified, you're about to get into a really good school with a, you know, everybody thinks it's wonderful. Uh, then the private market would find you attractive from a loan standpoint. 
And along the way, maybe something miraculous happened and maybe the school decided that they could discount the program from 200000 to match the amount of funding that you actually have available. So my the second quick question is, right now, suppose you're Harvard MBA alum, first year out, you got a private equity job, you have 120000 in outstanding debt. Do these people get the same treatment as people? Absolutely. Okay. They, they would get a $50,000 debt relief. This because, is, and, and the, let me tell you, that's, that's one of the things I'm really focused on is uh, basically what I, what I call equity for all. It's um, no income limits and no wealth limits. And part of that is um, if you look at my background, you'll find that I was a military officer. And I never will forget sitting, standing shoulder to shoulder with 18-year-olds, and we were engaged in serious business. I mean, serious business. And never once did any of them call home and say, Mom, what do you think I should do today? Um, or, you know, and so I'm a firm believer that, um, that you know, our, you, reach a, you reach a, a legal age of maturity, I mean, legal age of, of emancipation, and, and you should be fully emancipated. And we should not be, you know, convoluting how much you're going to get in terms of federal education benefit because of the you know financial condition of your family. As someone who is looking into a grad program that would cost about $50,000, this all sounds very appealing to me from a self-interest standpoint. But when we talk about this with other people, this issue of fairness is the one that comes up a lot. Do you have an idea of who, who this would help? One of the concerns with even with people like Elizabeth Warren's plan is that it ends up being regressive because the people that already have a lot of money also have debt and then the government's helping out upper-middle-class people. Those conversations generally revolve around uh, people having a view that there's only a limited amount of resource that can be deployed, so therefore you want to uh, deploy the finite resource against the, quote, most needy. Mm -hmm. The reality is the government, because of its ability to uh, raise funds, and this, in, in particular the scale of this program, even though it's huge, it's still uh, a relatively... I mean, it's a big program, but it, it's not Medicare. Or, yeah. Know. Well, by the way, I don't want to go there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, whatever the government would do if they took on health care and using the same operationalized model that they used in um, in federal student debt, it would make federal student loans look like a tempest in a bathtub. Um, wow. I mean, just the scale would just be staggering. I mean, that's one of the lessons I think we've learned here. The federal government should not be in the direct engagement on this type of activity business. But anyway, getting back to uh, equity has probably been one of the most important things I've thought through as I've gone through this. The first question is, what do you do going forward? And the answer is, in my opinion, there's got to be a defined limit. Once you come to that defined limit, you have to create that equity against the people on the books today and against those people that never came on the books. So the answer is, lots and lots and lots of people get uh, benefited by it. There's you know, some that will say, well... You know, it's not enough to get me into that really supercharged program at XYZ. And to define limit is simply how much you're able to take out as a student loan? No, no more loans. Got a defined it. limit is how much you're going to get in terms of a, a, a line of credit entitlement from the government. My, if you, the, the fundamental aspect of my program is no more loans. It's a no loans program. It's a no government loans. The private sector no, no could provide loans, right? right? No government. And by the way, my doctoral dissertation was actually entitled "Eyes Wide Shut: Understanding Private Student Loan Indebtedness." So my research was around the unique characteristics of private student loan debt. And to understand that, you had, of course had to understand the federal side. Now I'm going to throw out. I'm going to address the elephant in the room here. You're a Republican. Yeah. 
you sound a lot more like uh, Bernie Sanders. Some some of our listeners, maybe. no, no, no. You got, you got this a bit of a southern twang Bernie doesn't have. But... <laughs> I, I will, I will, I will self. A much better haircut too. <laughs> At least I got a haircut. <laughs> um, I'm actually a, um, you know, yes, I am a Republican. I believe in all. I can, I believe, pass the Republican test on all on all elements. But at the same time, I, I view myself as a moderate Republican. Uh, what does that mean? It means I believe you you own up to what you sign up for. You do it, those things. But the difference between, you know, I think what I'm laying out and what Senator Warren or Senator Sanders are laying out is they haven't the foggiest idea what you do day two. They say, give it up, and then what? Okay. Well, if you really get into their programs, it's, well, just continue to make more unlimited loans. Uh and so now you've created a, an amazing moral hazard because people are going to say, well, wait a minute, you get, they get, you know, they canceled them out there. I'll just hang around and wait till this gets canceled out. So it's this. And, and then the other thing they're saying is, oh, by the way, uh, it'll be free college, which they failed to tell you that their definition of free college only relates to tuition and not the other stuff. And only, by the way, if you go to a public university, which is the worst possible thing, anybody in higher ed will tell you that when you eliminate uh, academic choice and start concentrating, and particularly start concentrating federal dollars, even through a grant program, only into public schools, then that's very simply a federal takeover of the higher education system. Uh, So there's breaks down, and then you start talking about funding. I mean, so you're going to fund it off of a few wealthy individuals. Well, those folks can get on airplanes and move themselves and their money someplace else. And you know Bernie's program, where you start talking about them, attacks Wall Street transactions. I mean, those things are uh, non-predictable. Uh, one of the reasons I really focused in on top-line revenue for corporate America is it's predictable, it's sustainable, it has a natural growth element to it, and it matches what I call this is the the conservative piece of me sources and uses of funds. The source of the funds are the people that are going to hire the people that are basically setting the defined standard of what they want those folks to pursue academically. Okay, if you're going to do that, then and then the use of the funds is hey, let's 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 go let's go give some folks the opportunity to get trained. Now the Republican comes out. All right, we are getting dirty looks from people outside the studio because our time is now up. Okay, but Wayne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Wayne. As always, thank you all of you for listening, especially Dr. Wayne Johnson for joining us. Tui, first episode, or second episode in the books. Second episode in the books, and this one was really. It's really difficult to think about because we all – here's the problem. It's easy to look at his proposed solution and say, okay, it seems a little ridiculous. It's going to be a big, big commitment from the federal government. It doesn't seem very conservative. It doesn't. But at the same time, is the problem – or is the solution worse than our current problem? That's a different question because, of course, there's not going to be a perfect solution to this. But is this better than what we have in place? Well, one thing he didn't talk about, and we should have asked him about it, something that to me kind of makes the argument for debt forgiveness more than a lot of other stuff is that if you look at now, the amount of entrepreneurs is way down. Way fewer people are taking risks and starting a business. And a lot of people say one of the reasons for it is that they're saddled with debt. You know, if you've got $30,000 in debt fresh out of college – you're not going to take on more debt from a bank to go set up a business somewhere. You know, your priority is going to be paying this off. And by the time you're 30 or whatever, you've actually paid it off. 
you're not going to take the risk to start a business. This is Andrew Yang's argument, too, with the universal basic income, is that yeah. that will help entrepreneurship levels. It's a shame MSNBC is totally silencing Andrew Yang on the <laughs> stage, not letting him talk until 35 minutes in. Yang blackout. Well, I will say one thing on Dr. Johnson's argument, too, and, and we raised this during the episode, is a lot of Americans, two-thirds of adult Americans, actually did not get college degrees. And so he says, well, don't worry, there will be something in it for them. But I think it's just, it seems like such an imbalanced giveaway. Yeah. And if your your ultimate goal is debt alleviation, why restrict it to one specific bucket? I, I realize it's the most problematic bucket. This bucket's spilling over, it's terrible. I mean, I, I, would, I would push back a little bit in the sense, well, first of all, one thing that would be interesting to look at is the share of small businesses, new businesses that are held by people with college degrees versus without college degrees. I think that'd be really interesting to look at. That being said, I mean, the kind of debt that people, the two thirds of people without college degrees have, the one third with college degrees are, are exposed to that same debt as well. Mortgages, credit card debt. They're also taking on another massive level of debt as well. So it's so it's not it's not like that 67% of people without college degrees have some unique kind of debt they're exposed to. No, that's that's the whole population. Plus the people that are going for college are exposed to another level of debt. The, the more relevant point to me is that is this type of debt, the student loan debt, was this a problem that the government itself created? And there's a strong argument that, yes, it did help create that with the easy money pushing up cost of tuition in the first place and just the general sense that just the cultural power that the idea of a college degree has for pushing everybody into or so many people into this to take out all these massive loans for a degree. And if, if this is a government problem, maybe that does require a government solution in the way that other types of debt possibly would not require. But, you know, there's another problem in this country, and that's the problem of the federal budget deficit. And I think if you look at his solution, yes, it addresses an isolated, well, it's not so isolated when it's 1.6 trillion, but it addresses a significant problem. But right now, when you look at our country's needs and our country's biggest issues, it doesn't seem like tax credit giveaways, loan forgiveness, emptying out our balance sheet. I don't think that makes a lot of sense given our other problems. It's, well, it's a matter of opportunity cost. And it is, yeah. is that if, if we've got to forgive $1.6 trillion, I know he says that's not really going to be an expenditure because we can just write it off or whatever he said. Well, and also the 1.6 includes interest payments. And beyond that, well, what is he? I mean, he said most of it isn't even going to be repaid. I can't remember, the, or maybe not most, but he right. said some large share of it's not even going to come in. So it's sitting there in the books. Right. But it doesn't actually exist, the money. Yeah. Right. Yeah, either way, it will require some amount of spending. And if that money would be better put toward some other use is the open question. I'm just wondering what auditor would look at our federal government and say, you know what we need? We need more tax credits to people. You know, we need we need more loan forgiveness. We need to get rid of the few assets we already I mean, it's just I get what he's I get what he's saying, but it just doesn't seem we don't seem to be in a position to do it. All right, we are almost out of time, but I do want to read one comment from a loyal listener over at Ricochet, Colleen B., commenting on our recent episode called On the Front Lines of the Islamic State. This was a great episode. We interviewed Mike Giglio of The Atlantic. He came out with a book recently called Shatter the Nations about his time as a foreign correspondent covering ISIS and the Syrian civil war. Colleen says, Syria is a mess, and neither former President Obama or President Trump have covered themselves in glory. I suppose it could have been done worse, but it's hard to see how. A lot of people have died, which always happens in a civil war, but maybe it could have been ended sooner. Gee, we may need Colleen B. on the show. Well, banter at AEI.org, Colleen, if you, want, <laughs> if you want to get in touch. We love hearing from you all. Please continue to keep it up with the comments. We've Both Max and I have heard separately from different friends and family and listeners how much they enjoyed that episode with, with Mike Giglio on the Islamic State. So I encourage you all to check it out. Super fascinating guy. 
And hope you enjoyed this episode too. Yeah, and if you don't like Tui, well, <laughs> well send us in that <laughs> send us in that feedback as well. All right, that is all the time we are giving to this episode. We'll be back please next end, week. Please end the Yang Media blackout. This is to you, MSNBC. If you're listening, Keith Alberman, we put this on you. <laughs> all right, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>